Would you join me now as we do that? Gracious God, who's humbled in the way in which you have set us as your people apart. You have saved us, not because we have done uh, anything good, but through your grace and mercy. Because you have adopted us as your sons and daughters, we are set apart. We are holy because your holiness resides in us. You have given us yourself, for, for you live in us. You have chosen to reside not in a building, not with a building in it with ornate architecture or, or stained glass windows, but you have chosen to reside in your people, your people who are broken and suffering from the effects of sin. Lord, we confess that we do not often enough recognize your presence in us. You call us to look like you, to walk like you, and to model our lives after you. You call us to this so that the world will be saved through your word as our lives proclaim it. Lord, we do not understand this. Our lives so often look like the world around us. Instead of proclaiming the life that, that we have in you, we confess that our lives resemble that of the world, a world that has placed its hope in itself. Cause us, Father God, to rely on you. Cause us to be set apart for your work, not for our own. Give us a, a renewed sense of urgency for your glory and a renewed sense of hatred, Lord, for the sin that desires to pull us down. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God. And through the power of your spirit living in us, we have overcome sin. No longer must we be, live as slaves to sin, for we have been set free. And you are a good and gracious God who calls us as your people to turn from that sin that so easily burdens us. Father, we also thank you that we are not alone in this world, but you have given us other gospel-preaching, like-minded churches in the area. This morning, we thank you, Lord, for Outward Church and Pastor Matt Porter. Lord, we thank you for their, their fidelity to the gospel and to your word. And we pray that this morning, as the word is preached there, that there would be many who would come to know you. Lord, may the fruit of the seed that is scattered there uh, just bear rich fruit, Lord. Uh, we are told, Lord, that uh, also that in your word that you hear the prayer of the righteous. And so we pray that you would hear our request this morning. We continue to pray for the Jacobson's grandson, Beck. Father God, we do not understand why the effects of sin strike the young. But we know that your purposes are higher than our understanding. We pray for healing. Lord, we pray for peace and we pray for wisdom. Most of all, Lord, we pray that through this situation, you would bring spiritual life and spiritual health. For we know that through you, this is possible. Lord, we also pray for uh, Deborah Thomas as she heads back to India to be with family for the summer. Oh, Lord, we pray that she would be a blessing to them. May she uh, encourage them and herself be encouraged. Lord, we just use, or ask that you would use her uh, in, in mightily, Lord, over in India this summer. And finally, we pray, Lord, for the preaching of the word this morning. May it bring life into our hearts and equip us for what you have in store in the days ahead. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Open your Bibles to Revelation 18. 
And we're going to be spending a lot of time, obviously, in Revelation 18 this morning, as well as in Jeremiah and Isaiah. So you can get those fingers ready to turn. If you don't know where Jeremiah or Isaiah is, you can start to look those up in your table of contents. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid back in the 80s was a movie called The Adventures of the Wilderness Family. Does anybody remember The Wilderness Family? The other like four or five of us that were hanging out in the 80s, yeah. It's a story of a typical middle-class family in America that was operating in the daily drudgery of life. But then one day after the bills keep piling up and the daily commute becomes too much, and they find out that their daughter has a medical issue that needed reprieve from the polluted air of Los Angeles, the parents decided that they had had enough. It's kind of like the story of how the Spangles came from L.A. to Oregon. <laughs> they sold all that they had, bought supplies, and moved out to the wilderness. See what I'm talking about? It's, it's true, yeah. They built a cabin and befriended bear cubs as pets and dealt with all of the struggles that you would have away from the advancement of civilization. I'm talking about the movie, not the Spangles there, just FYI. Besides being a fun show for a young kid, it was a movie that very much resonated with the spirit of the day. There seemed to be a zeitgeist or a cultural theme of wanting to escape, but being unable to. All of the children of the cultural awakening of the 60s and 70s were now having to settle down and get jobs and do the very same, same thing that their square parents had done before them. And the cry of society was, let us out. But this desire of escape was not just for those who were worldly hippies turning into yuppies. The church even started to trend toward this ideal. Gone were the days of the church building at the very core of the city downtown, as we see even here in Salem. Churches instead, in the 70s and 80s, started to find property on the outskirts of the city limits to build a haven, an escape, where their megachurch could prosper. But the 80s were not the only time period where mankind wished to escape. Whether it be the ancient desert fathers who fled civilization for isolation and self-denial, or whether it be the various communities established throughout church history, or closed communities like Quakers and Shakers and the Amish, many took this idea of escape from society and they ran with it to an extreme. But what we should all know through both experience and biblical truth is that we can do whatever we want to change our environment externally, and that may help a bit for a moment, but at the end of the day, it is in fact a spiritual internal problem that we are trying to flee. It is the fact that each and every human is pervasively wicked at our core, and therefore the societies and groups and institutions that we form are also at their core wicked. And they will eventually show themselves as such given enough time because they're full of people. Now, you see, we can do all sorts of things to change laws and institutions, and even try to change the very fabric of society, and all it will do is exacerbate the problem that all of us are rebellious against the one holy creator God. That's the core issue we're trying to escape. The solution, biblically, has to start there. It has to start with an evaluation internally of who we serve, who we worship, and to which kingdom we belong. The question is, have we bought into, and are we separating uh, excuse me, are we participating in the kingdom of darkness? Or have we given our lives over in submission to the one who purchased us with his own blood to ransom us and draw us into his kingdom? Which one do we belong to? For the kingdom of darkness will be quite summarily judged. 
And those who find themselves seduced by its attractiveness so that they fall prey to its deception will be judged with it. This morning, we will see the beginnings of that judgment, which will continue on into our text next week, the rest of chapter 18. But we will also hear the cry of God this morning to his elect to escape from this crumbling kingdom and make sure to have no part in it. What we will find is that this escape, yes, it does have a part of it that is practically external, but most importantly, it is an escape from the delusion of sin into the arms of the one who is truth, life, and the very way of salvation. This morning, what we will see in the first eight, chap- or eight verses of chapter 18 is the sentencing of Babylon and God's call to escape. The sentencing of Babylon and God's call to escape. My prayer for each of us this morning and collectively as a church is that we would heed the call given to us. The Bible is very simple when he gives us commands. We simply obey. Amen? So let's read Revelation 18, 1 through 8, and let's take a look at what we're going to unpack this morning. It says there in verse 1, After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is the word of the Lord. Just as we've heard poetic worship and praise and rejoicing in various other portions of Revelation, especially the throne room scenes, we have here a similar poetic meter. You can see, and you'll notice throughout the use of repetition, especially in threes, it gives it rhythm. But this is not praise, this is judgment that will transition into the latter half of the chapter into a kind of funeral dirge. And so the first thing that we hear is another angelic vision of God's glorious court called to order. This scene is set up more as a judgment scene, as if a court is about to hand down sentencing. We see that in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. This section begins with after this, giving us the place of the vision in the full revelatory sequence of visions. In other words, it is not an indicator of sequencing of earthly events. Let me say that again. The after this is not an indicator of sequencing of earthly events. 
It's simply telling us that this vision occurred in John's sight after the vision of the harlot and the beast that we covered in chapter 17. John sees another angel, possibly one of the angels that was in charge of pouring out the wrath of the seven bowls, and he comes forth to make an announcement. But the interesting characteristic of the angel is that he has, notice, great authority, having great authority, it says, and the earth was made bright with his glory. These are interesting phrases. These are not general descriptors of just any old angel, but they are trying to communicate something about what is happening. It's setting the scene, if you will, of the rest of the chapter. Now, who is it that has authority in Revelation? It's Christ at the hand of the Father. And who is it that receives all glory and honor? It is Christ at the hand of the Father. This book is about who? Us on this earth in a seven-year tribulation. No, it's about who? Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so the fact that this angel comes forward and is not explicitly spoken of as Christ means that he is operating in his authority and has been given that authority with such a close connection to Christ that this angel is operating in the afterglow of being in his presence. In other words, this angel is coming from the very presence, the very authority, the very glow of Jesus himself enthroned on the throne. And he's coming to announce something very, very important. You can recall the story of Moses and what occurred every time he was in the presence of God, either at Mount Sinai or when he met him in the tabernacle. He came away reflecting the glow of God's glory. He was not God, but he had that reflection. And so the imagery that we have here, just in verse 1, is that this angel has been in the presence of God, sent on his behalf, and as his emissary and messenger, he's coming to deliver a decree from the throne of authority. But this isn't any old message either. It's a specific message of judgment. We see that at the end of verse 8. It says, For mighty is the Lord God who has judged Babylon, judged her. And as I already noted, the content of this judgment is delivered with this poetic meter, each section having three lines speaking of God's divine sentencing. And so in summary, this is what we'll see. Babylon in verse 2 has become a home for demons, a haunt for evil spirits, and a haunt for unclean birds. In verse 3, the nations drink of her adulterous wine, kings commit adultery with her, and merchants grow rich with her excessive luxuries. And then in verse 6, God issues the order to bring recompense, to give back to her what she has given, and to pay her back double, to mix her a double portion. And in verse 8, the plagues that overtake her are three as well, death and mourning and famine. You can see that this is a weighty poetry that is being meant to uh, draw the reader's eyes and ears. All of this is meant to provide a picture of the bailiff, if you will, coming out before the judge saying, all rise, and delivering the news from the jury so that the Lord might provide final sentencing to this city of Babylon that has been condemned in guilt. In other words, God's glorious court has been called to order and all of us should lean forward to hear the sentence given and watch with anticipation as the gavel strikes. If you're a person who back in the day sat in anxious anticipation at the O.J. Simpson uh, reveal of what the sentencing would be, or maybe more currently you were just tied up in the Johnny Depp trial, then we should definitely be leaning forward to hear this one and ignore those other ones. They're not as important. Just saying. For it is here that what we will see and what we will hear is God's judicial sentence for Satan's deceitful system. 
God's judicial sentence for Satan's deceitful system. And you'll see this as almost two pieces of bread in a sandwich, verses 2 through 3 and verses 6 through 8. You'll notice that the statements of judgment are these outer portions. And it's pointing to that center text, like that sandwich idea, emphasizing what is spoken of in God's warning to his people. We first hear this angel cry out with a summary of the punishment. Notice there in verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The duplicate use of the word fallen indicates a decisive and complete judgment. It is fallen to such an extent that it will never recover. But what Babylon is being discussed here? Is this the old Babylon of ancient days? Is this, as some surmise, a rebuilding of Babylon like Saddam Hussein tried to do? Well, as Ryan helped us to understand last week, Babylon the city, like everything else in Revelation, is used symbolically. Babylon is a symbolic type of any and all imperial cities and imperial kingdoms throughout history. Those kingdoms that have used their authority and influence to draw the nations and their people against the one true creator God and cosmic king. Any kingdom that tries to make a name for itself without God. But for the first century audience, initially intended for this, uh, that this letter was intended for, it was most immediately symbolizing the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire. But if you check world history, Rome did not fall for another 320 years after the writing of this book. So what's going on here? What is he talking about? Well, the words fallen and uh, duplicate, fallen, fallen, are what are grammatically called aorist, active indicatives in the Greek grammar. It's a type of verb that indicates what is happening, but with regards, without regards to time. In other words, it's happened once and it is yet ongoing. The fallenness of Babylon is before all times. It's outside of a specific chronology, in other words. We don't really have a similar grammatical tense in English. And so what this tells us is that this is indeed a symbol of any and all imperial capitals that lead the world in idolatry against God. It was not only those ancient cities of Sodom and Babylon and Nineveh, but it's also Washington, D.C., New York, Berlin, Shanghai, Dubai, Moscow, and so on. It's any worldly system that underlies these imperial physical cities. And so the immediate question that many ask with regard to eschatology or the study of last things when they realize that our country bears a striking resemblance to Babylon is, are we at the end? Will the United States cease right before Christ comes back? And the answer is, dear friends, we don't know. <laughs> but in a non-American-centric view, we can look at world history and see that many empires crumbled before the U.S. was ever, ever here. And it, the American empire, and many more might crumble before Christ returns. Or we could be the last. Regardless, the message of Revelation is we should be awake and waiting and ready nonetheless. Amen? Amen. Now John is writing, however, not to give us timing in this vision, but to help us identify these Babylonian-like empires and societies. For what purpose? So that we might be wise in their midst and follow the command that is, we're going to look at in a moment to come out of them. John seems to note seven traits of these kingdoms. 
These kingdoms are identified with idolatry and immorality, extravagance and luxury. Religion based in kind of a sorcery and a witchcraft. And you might say, oh, good thing that we're not there as a country. We're Judeo-Christian. But friends, sorcery and witchcraft really is just a pagan attempt to manipulate God. Go into most Christian churches and you will hear prayers that are just simply an attempt to manipulate God. Most people are working out their salvation on their own merit to manipulate God. And so I would say that much of the Christianity you find in America is even based in sorcery and witchcraft. It also is tyranny and oppression, which leads to a persecution and eventual martyrdom of God's people. Arrogance and self-deification. For all these traits that have led to godless action, God will judge any kingdom that resembles this type of Babylon. And John then continues with the reasoning behind this judgment. Notice, beginning in verse 3, that he answers the question of why God is judging them. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. First, the angel notes that the nations have followed Babylon's lead in the debauchery of idolatry. Ryan painted the picture well last week of the fact that idolatry and fornication are used as parallel metaphors for, idol- uh, for this idea of worshiping pagan gods. And so the statement, drinking the wine of her, her immoral passion and the king's readiness to fornicate with her are not literal sexual acts, but symbolic imagery to describe how the world has followed along as the places of seeming religious integrity are actually worshiping false and demonic gods. We might say in the United States that in God we trust. But in fact, it's on the very God that we serve. We serve mammon in this country, greed, and many other false gods. And these places, these empires, promote syncretism and ecumenism, which simply deceives their subjects into a false sense of religious faith. If you're not familiar with those words, it's when we combine a very obvious pagan religion, with things that somewhat resemble Christianity. In other words, putting a Band-Aid on top of it to make it look better. And syncretism has become the religion of the day in this country. Most of us are so immersed in it that we're even unaware of it. Secondly, rather than look to God for protection, the kings of the earth, the leaders of the earth, have aligned themselves with this worldly system of Babylon politically. They form alliances regardless of the character of the kingdoms with which they form alliances, believing that they cannot trust God for their care or protection. They must trust their earthly alliances. And lastly, the kings of the earth have aligned themselves with Babylon in alliance economically, not only spiritually and politically, but also economically. Again, rather than trust in God for provision, mankind has desired to make a name for itself and honor and worship the materials of creation rather than the creator himself. And so throughout history, when economic hardship has hit, rather than humble ourselves in obedience to God and his divine commands of good stewardship and see economic hardship as a judgment by which we can go to God and beg for repentance and and, uh, uh, forgiveness, Mankind instead builds the economic bubble that much bigger by aligning with other nations in the financial shell game that is mankind's economy. Mankind has trusted in our wealth 
rather than God. Just in case you didn't immediately apply this, our world immediately and locally is no different, dear friends. We are in the belly of the beast, so to speak. These descriptions capture perfectly the idolatry, political and diplomatic hypocrisy, and economic arrogance and foolishness of our own dear nation. We are indeed missionaries in the midst of a country that ideologically is the great-grandchild of Babylon itself. And yet, we are not the first, nor will we probably be the last. And friends, this truth should solidify us in our resolve to stand firm and not fall to the seductive nature of arrogant and prideful nationalism that thrives on these same characteristics. We should be proud of our country in the pieces that they tried, our forefathers tried to instill that are, in fact, Christian, but be honest with the fact that we most, mostly are not living that out in any measure today. For God will deal with our nation just as he has dealt with other nations before and will do with other nations after. He will bring justice upon the various peoples and nations and empires that follow in the shadow of Babylon. And so we must stand firm, stop waiting for an exit, and stand firm. According to this judgment language in verses 2 and 3 and verses 6 through 8, is the judgments God pronounced on physical Babylon back in the days of Jeremiah. Let's look at 6 through 8 again here. We already looked at 2 and 3, but look at 6 through 8. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Core to this judgment language is the same thing that God pronounced on physical Babylon, literal Babylon, back in the days of Jeremiah. God has used Babylon as his tool of judgment there in Jeremiah, if you're unfamiliar with the story. He's used uh, Babylon as a tool of judgment against rebellious Israel. They have been given over to idolatry in those days, and God says, I'm going to bring Babylon against you. But even then, God's holy character would not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so God, through the prophet Jeremiah, stated their consequences clearly at the end of that book. Would you turn there with me to Jeremiah 50 and 51? Jeremiah 50 and 51. Now, I would heavily recommend that you read this section in full on your own this week to see the connection even deeper than we can go through this morning for a limited time. But in this prophesying of the destruction of literal physical Babylon, Jeremiah makes statements that obviously inform John's symbolism in Revelation. So what we're going to do now is a quick flyover of this section, okay? Because I want you to see it with the idea of what we've read in Revelation 18, I want you to see the same things coming out in Jeremiah. Look, for example, with me at Jeremiah 50, 2 through 3. Okay, 2 through 3. It says, Declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not, and say, Babylon is taken. 
Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Those were gods, nationalistic gods of Babylon. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her. That's the Medes. We're going to be coming to destroy them. Which shall make her a land a land of desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. This is where we see the judgment of the idolatry that uh, backs Babylon. Look with me at the barrenness. We saw it there. Uh, we can see it also in verse 13. Take a look at 50:13. It says, Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Take a look at verses 39 and 40. It says there, Therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn there. We see the remnant and the forgiveness for it that escapes out of Babylon in chapter 50, verse 20. Take a look at verse 20. In verse 20, it says, In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be uh, sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin uh, in Judah. None shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. You're seeing this idea of calling out God's faithful people. We see this in verse 28 as well. Look at verse 28. A voice, they flee and escape from the land of Babylon. Notice those words, flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance for his temple. We see God's vengeance in kind, pouring out a like vengeance in verse 29. Take a look at verse 29 there. It says, Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow and camp around her. Let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done. We see the fullness of judgment in 5046. Look at 5046 with me. At the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble and her cry shall be heard among the nations. Uh, we see it again uh, in 51, verse 29. 51, verse 29. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. Are you guys seeing some of the same themes? Look at 51, 61 through 64. Here we see the finality of it all. This is the end of Jeremiah's prophecy from here on in Jeremiah is a narrative of what happens, okay? And so here we see in 61, it says this, Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. And say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. That same imagery of a rope tied around it with a weight is going to be uh, brought into the second half of Revelation 18. Now, back in Revelation, turn back there with me now that we have some of this idea. You guys can read it in full this week. Back in Revelation 18, you're seeing some of these same ideas. 
You can hear the same language and even feel the emotional weight and horror that John is intending to bring forth into this symbolic truth that God has judged earthly kingdoms, nations, and cities and found them wanting. For example, verse 2, what you see there is the uninhabitableness of Babylon, right? You see the idea that people have gotten drunk and gotten drawn into Babylon. Verses 6 through 8, you see the massive uh, judgment that's coming upon her, all right? And one day, what this is saying is that God will destroy the idolatry, immorality, and worldly ideology that backs them all, not just partially, not just the destruction of one nation for another empire to take its place, but that all empires that fight against God will be destroyed. As he destroyed physical Babylon, he will make good on his promise to destroy the kingdom of darkness and all of its domain. You see, to the Israelites, he promised that he would defeat their enemies, and they are still, in a sense, waiting for that. Why? Because all of us are waiting for it, and it's only accomplished in the full reign of Jesus Christ over the nations. See, all these promises to Israel find their fulfillment ultimately in Christ and what his death, resurrection, and reign accomplished. In verse 6 of Revelation 18, John is declaring the just nature of God. He says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. This is God's just nature coming out. That just as the ideological darkness of Satan and the kingdom he built deceived and destroyed mankind, she, this symbolic Babylon, will be repaid in full and all those who follow her. Now, the language here in the English seems vindictive, but it simply means that she will receive an equal serving. You might say equal, it says double. Well, the double portion means that a second helping will be prepared for her to partake herself. In other words, she filled the cup to give to the nations, and now God is going to fill it again so that she has to drink it. Just because the bowl has been poured out does not mean that Babylon has escaped God's wrath. In verse 7, God then declares that the torment and mourning that she will receive will be the contrasting equivalent of the luxury and opulence in which, in which she once lived. Now, this is the fullness of Christ's teaching that those who desire to gain their lives in this life will lose it. And those who willingly lose their lives in this life for Christ, in this practice field we know as this life, will gain it for eternity. And this, too, gives us a characteristic trait of Babylon and those who live in it. Maybe this might resonate with you. This is a way to see whether or not you are part and parcel of Babylon. The word here for luxury is a word not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but you see it there in verse 3, in verse 7, and we'll see it again in verse 9. It's the Greek word streneao, and it means to live sensually living only to gratify the senses through food and drink, experience, sexual gratification, and so on. It is to live a lifestyle of luxury. Does that sound like any society you know, pasted all over every social media? It's why, for goodness sakes, why do we have heroes like Kim Kardashian? Because we are in Babylon. She's living the lifestyle, and yet if you look at it, it's very sad. Historically, it's only arisen in those empires that are so greedy and wealthy that they have the time to engage in this lifestyle, for they are not busy surviving. 
It is a society based in Freud's pleasure principle, giving vent to our authentic selves and our authentic desires without any self-control. And the worst part is, because of the wealth that surrounds this straining for luxury in these societies, our own included, often its adherents are deceived into believing that God is with them and blessing their life and efforts. Because really, that's all God cares about is giving us our best life now, right? This was the case with the church of Laodicea in 317, and it's the case in 2022 America. This is what he said in Revelation 317. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, realizing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, this, this kind of system can only survive in delusion and deception. Literal delusion from reality. In Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah calls the idols that support this Babylonian system works of delusion. For they are worthless, and at the time of punishment, they shall perish, and all who trusted in them will be shocked at their demise. This is the harlot of Revelation 18. With torment and mourning staring her in the face, her motivation is still delusion, it's still pride, it's still self exaltation and a delusion in her understanding of her position with regard to God. She, like any good Disney follower, says, Look at me, I'm a princess. I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. John pictures her in the cultural context of the day as a woman whose husband, her provider, her protector, and remember, in that day it mattered, her husband, her provider, and her protector has died, and yet she delusionally says, I'm not a widow. I will never see mourning. Now, just so you know, contextually, in this day, a woman who was not part of the beyond 1% of wealth, most women in that day, if they lost their husbands and did not immediately remarry, what was one of the only jobs they could do to provide for themselves and keep up their delusion? It was prostitution. That's meant here, innately, in the text. In her delusion, she is continuing the cycle of depravity and destruction in her own life. And this is the same self-deception for all who bury their heads in their pursuit of their best life now, and all the while are actually dismissing God. John says next, therefore, that because of her self-deception, punishment will come upon her, and all those who sit as citizens of her dark kingdom in a shocking and immediate way. Look at verse 8 again. It says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And again, friends, John is not primarily here talking about timing on this earth. He is emphasizing the whiplash that those that have been rebellious to God will feel Excuse me, when the day of judgment comes. And friends, I don't necessarily think that Wiccans or atheists will be all that shocked on Judgment Day. They'll be like, yeah, I totally dismiss you. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think they'll probably be a bit shocked, but I actually think the bigger whiplash will be for all those who declared with their mouths that they were followers of Christ alone as Lord and King, who were, in reality, living not in his kingdom, but as a part of Babylon. The language used here in verse 8 comes from another Old Testament prophet as he declared judgment on Babylon. Go ahead and turn, or actually look up at the screen with me at Isaiah 47. 
This is what it says in Isaiah 47, 7 through 11. You, sh- you said, I shall be mistress forever. I'm a princess. So that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Can anybody remind me what the name of our God is that he exposed in Exodus, the great I am? Interesting, self-deification. I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Friends, our world is sitting saying, I am my authentic self. No one will judge me. What whiplash will happen on that day of judgment and how broken our hearts should be for that fact. We sit idly by while we watch those around us take in and build up their own judgment. Dear brothers and sisters, it is clear in Revelation 18 and the Old Testament language that it brings to bear that God is almighty and powerful in his judgment It is true, it is real, and it will happen. Otherwise, we should throw out this book because it's lying to us. You can't sit in a halfway position when you read this level of judgment. There will be no escape to any that have found comfort and solace in the worldly system here portrayed in this symbolic Babylon. The language used tells us this judgment will be complete. Death, mourning, famine, and fire. In ancient days, the worst possible event for a city was fire. The smoke of a city signaled its impending doom, for nothing could stop a raging fire until the city was in ashes. God's judicial sentence for Satan's deceitful system will be similarly exhaustive. And those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ should want so badly to flee from this impending destruction that they, we, should be listening intently for God's gracious warning to his own people to escape. And that's what we see next in verses four through five, God's gracious warning to his own people to escape. Now this brings us back to the warning that is sandwiched in the midst of our text. The one speaking is not the angel, but now it is God himself as he calls his audience, my people. And what is it that he says in verses 4 and 5? Let's read it again. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's okay for God to say, God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. And so we see this warning as it rolls into that judgment. Now, he is doing as he has always done with his people. Think with me through the biblical theme quickly. In Genesis 12, God called Abram, soon to be Abraham, out of his idolatrous family and society to become the seed of God's people. In Genesis 19, God called Lot and his family out of Sodom. Do you notice a a trend there? 
Oftentimes, it's our family members, extended family, that keep us locked in Babylon. In Exodus, he called his people out of the pagan kingdom in which they were enslaved to be his people under his protection and provision. God's people have always been called to be his saints, and that word saints means the called out ones that are meant to be set apart, the set apart ones. And so the detail of this call to flee, this evacuation notice prior to the judgment calls us to first recognize our connection to Babylon and to flee from it. We too often forget the secular and pagan water around us because we are fish who swim in it all day. But its destruction is coming, and we have been called to flee Babylon for citizenship that cannot be broken in the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom and people. John is again employing language from the story of Israel and literal Babylon in order to make his point. Go back with me to Jeremiah again. Go to Jeremiah 51. We're just there, so you can go right back to where you were, Jeremiah 51. And look at verses 6 through 10 and 45. Again, I recommend you read through the whole chapter. But let's look just at 6 through 10. See if you can make the connection here. Verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. You see the providence and sovereignty of God there, using an evil demonic group in order to accomplish his purposes. The nation drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her, take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. That's sarcasm there, folks. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. And again, turn to 45. And a similar statement. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Notice that God is seen here as using Babylon to draw those who desire to be drunk with worldliness. It's like a magnet for all those who want to rebel against God, separating the wheat from the tares. But to his own people, he says, flee for your life. Flee. Now, if somebody were to run in here and say, everyone flee, how would you respond? (sighs) Should I? Why? What's going on out there? No, we should get up and flee. We should run. We should escape. Remember, though, in Revelation... This is symbolic imagery. Here in Jeremiah, it's literal, but let's go back to Revelation. Okay, let's turn right back there to Revelation 18. This is symbolic imagery, and so the change of scenery is not so much external as it is internal. The movement from Babylon to Zion to New Jerusalem is not external, it's internal. We know this because he next says, flee so that you don't take part in her sins and therefore also share in her judgment of plagues. He is calling us out of an ideology and theology that leads to action that is contrary to God's will. He is saying, stop playing around with the world. 
Stop giving in to their worldview and their theology and their morality. When the church has said something for 2,000 years, some person who stands up in 2022 and says, I have a new way of reading the Bible, don't listen to them. The phrase take part in verse 4, from take part in her sins, is the word in the Greek that means koinonia. It's sun koinonio. Now, if you're familiar with that word koinonia, koinonia is the Greek word rendered in the English fellowship. It's saying have no fellowship with her, which is the fact that people are co-participating, fellowshipping with Babylon. Friends, you are either in communion with Christ and his people, or you are in communion with the world. You cannot have two masters, and you cannot have dual citizenship in both heaven and hell. We practice this in a living parable every Sunday as we limit communion to members of this church or visiting members of another church because we don't want to allow you to walk in deception that you are part of God's kingdom simply because you call yourself a Christian while you have primary fellowship with the world. If you have not given yourself over to God's people, then most likely you have not, not given yourself over to God. Now, there will come a point where God cannot let this rebellion and this sin go on. And as with so many other stories, such as Noah and Abraham and Lot and so on, God will hear his faithful remnants cry for justice, and he will see the sin that is piled up toward heaven. And it will be so bad, as Revelation 18.5 says, that God will have to act. Notice here in Revelation 18, the language that the sin will be, have, have become so blatant that it will have reached God in a way where he cannot hold his wrath back anymore. It's reached to heaven. And so our burning question should be, Lord, how do we flee? For we are in the midst of the world, immersed in the world, and let, yet, Lord, you are telling us to flee. How should we flee? Well, this book of Revelation that we are in is about the revelation of Jesus. So the first piece of fleeing from the counterfeit trinity and counterfeit fellowship is to instead embrace and give your allegiance to Jesus and his people above all else and to enter into communion with his people through baptism. The prophet Isaiah points out that it is the Messiah, the one who would die in our place. He is the only chance at escaping the worldly kingdoms we find ourselves in. Turn with me really quickly I'll make this quick because we're running out of time. Go to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. And look just at verse 11. He uses very similar language. The context here is that of God's people waking up to the fact that they have become enslaved to the nations. That's the verses of chapter 52 before verse 11. They become enslaved to the nations of the world who have oppressed them and foisted their idolatry upon them, and God is working to redeem them and call them back to a pure Jerusalem. And look at, look at verse 11 with me. What does it say? Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. How do we do this? Just read down the page a bit. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Who's that talking about? 
How do we escape Babylon? We cling so heavily to the one who has ransomed us out of the kingdom of darkness because he's clinging to us. For those of us in Christ, we know that we have been collected, ransomed by Jesus. If you do not know that you are in Christ, if you are worried this morning because you think, man, I think I do have one toe in Babylon, that means you're fully in Babylon, then you need to accept Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And we as your pastors would love to talk with you about what that is. If you feel that the Lord is calling you and drawing you, that he has saved you, we would love to talk with you about what it is to follow him. But for those of us in Christ, we then have to ask ask the next question. We have been called out and ransomed out of Babylon. So what does that look like for us then physically located in the world, but not being part of it? Well, Jesus assists us with this idea in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 14 through 15. It says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Notice that this is internal. This is spiritual. This is not external. Notice that our external environment is not the primary cause of our holiness. This is why I worry about people who think that going on a mission trip will make you more holy, that going and having a retreat will make you more holy. Yes, it will give you time away with the Lord, but friends, if we're not doing the work in our daily lives, getting into the word that Christ has given us, uh, it's not going to change much to change our external circumstances. So the question is, are we allegiant to Christ and his commands, or do we, whether in ambivalence, apathy, or rebellion, fall into allegiance to the one that runs this world and the ideologies that support it. Now, quickly, there are traditionally three ways in which the theologians across the centuries have thought about the interaction of church and culture. How should we interact in this place that we physically are located in while being different? And there are three ideas or theories. First is Christianity against culture, and this is very prominent. This is where we retreat from society, arguing with it all the while, making the church a bomb shelter in which we separate from the culture that is guilty, pointing fingers as opposed to speaking humbly to them and calling out with the fact that we too are sinners and only by Christ's grace have we been saved. That is what we should be doing, but Christ, Christianity against culture does not quite get that. Christianity of culture is also very prominent, and this is where in order to be relevant The church looks like and acts like the culture to supposedly draw people when in fact it is simply diluting the witness of the church and being drawn further into Babylon. You can tell that I'm against both of these approaches. The historically orthodox idea is Christianity in and for culture. This is where we are physically located amidst the masses but stand out as separate in our action, in our love for one another, and in our obedience to Christ, in our character That is what makes us different. It is where our ideological base is not political. It is not cultural. It is not driven by the trends of the day, but by obedience to God's word that has stood the test of time. And we live this out for the purpose of seeking the welfare of those places in which we live, trying to draw more out of the culture into Christ. Amen? That is the approach of this church And I hope that that is the approach of your life. And so we have some very basic application then to observe as we ponder these first eight verses in Revelation 18 and how we as the church interact with culture 
interact with the Babylon that we are in the midst of. So I want to give you a couple of final application points, and then we'll close. First, how similar are you to the world that you inhabit? Do you look like the culture you see on your social media feed and the way you behave in your peer group or at work? Do they even know you're different? What makes you different? Is your life marked by holiness, obedience to Christ's truth even when it might cost you, love for the people around you, humility, selflessness, sacrifice, and a desire to walk in self-control? What do you do with your Sunday mornings? I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but that shows you're different. It is these traits that show you are a citizen under the reign of Christ. What shows that you're different? Second, you might say, I am different. Perhaps you are different. But you're so worried about the fear of man that you find yourself approving of what the world does even while you personally do not engage in it. Man, this is huge right now. With regards to sexual ethics and the discussion of gender identity, how we talk about identity politics, St. Augustine in The City of God said, He that becomes protector of sin shall surely become its prisoner. Are you one that, without knowing it, has bought into the morality of the world that is founded upon living your authentic life? Do you approve of those that have this as their main ethic, even though it rages in violence against the God you say you serve? Friends, we need not be cruel to people who have this ideology nor condemning. They're condemned already. But we simply need to stand firm when presented with these issues and declare kindly where our allegiance lies. Third, if you are an educator or a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent in this room, some of you are aunts and uncles figuratively, not literally. The question is, is how are we training our kids? Are we expecting them to be trained in the ways of Christ and discipleship and truth by osmosis? Or worse yet, do we expect that one Sunday a week is enough to counter all that the world heaps on them? Are we proactively and regularly training our children to have discernment based on God's word? Rather than trying to protect them from the world through putting a Christian bubble around them so that when it pops, they go off the rails, are we purposefully guiding them as they are young, as they encounter the ideologies of the world? Parents of teenagers, if you're not already talking about sexuality and gender with your kids, it is too late. They've already been catechized. Fourth, we need to recognize who we are to be as the collective local church. The New City Catechism puts it so well when it says what the church is. This is what the New City Catechism says. God chooses and preserves for himself a community elected for eternal life and united by faith who love, follow, learn from, and worship God together. God sends out this community to proclaim the gospel and prefigure Christ's kingdom by the quality of their life together and their love for one another. How do we view the church? This will tell you whether or not you're in Babylon. Do we view the church as the community with which we have fellowship in Christ, that we live out our lives, or have we made it a provider of spiritual consumer products? One is the attitude 
of a citizen of New Jerusalem, and one is the attitude of a citizen of Babylon. As God calls out his people out of Babylon, friends, this is not a physical evacuation. Sure, if you are in the midst of a friend group that is not worshiping Jesus, you have to think about your physical location, your friendships, the company you keep. But primarily, this is not about a physical evacuation. It's about a spiritual one. For the church is pictured in Revelation 6 and 11 and 12 and 17 and 18 as being in the midst of the world so much so that they draw persecution and suffering for their testimony in Christ. But the church is also pictured separate and holy, as we saw in chapters 7 and 14 and 16. What makes us distinct is that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ and ransomed out of the kingdom of darkness and adopted into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us different. Dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, in what way have you become comfortable in your fellowship with the world? And in what way is Christ calling you today to flee into his loving arms and into the truth of his word? You see, the gospel is not just fire insurance that gets, out of, gets us to heaven and out of hell when we die. It is something that calls us into a kingdom and a community now. Which kingdom are you part of? If you are part of Babylon... God is commanding you today to flee, to escape, to run as fast as possible into his loving arms and the loving arms of his people. May we heed this call and lean wholly on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. It constantly wakes us up from our slumber of apathy and ambivalence, of simply just busyness in this life. We get so stuck on our plans that we often forget that we are actors in your plan. And so we pray that this morning that you would convict our hearts, not towards condemnation because you've saved your people from that, but towards a realization of where we might have been playing with Babylon a little too loosely. This morning, Lord, help us to flee. Help us to flee as individuals and as a communal church. Help us to flee into your arms, to lean so heavily upon you that we realize we have no other option of escape. Help us to be your people called by your name with your spirit. And as we step into communion, Lord, we pray that you would do this work in us. We do this not as just simply tradition, but as that living parable that proclaims that we have entered into communion with you and we have forsaken and repented from communion and fellowship with the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.